Good morning. Right, so um, you'll see my topic in a minute, and it comes from where a, a, a sort of a building on from what Kirk shared on Easter Sunday, which was about the resurrected Jesus, and it was particularly about our living hope. And I've been thinking about what that means. What does it mean to look for the living hope in our everyday circumstances as we face the challenges that life throws at us? And so that's what I'm going to bring to you today. And I'll start with just my perceptions of living hope. When I first became a Christian, I was, it was a very sweet little prayer. As a five-year-old girl, I went to a holiday club with Auntie Sunny, and she asked, do you want to invite Jesus into your heart? And I said, yes, please, and that's my earliest memory. And then a little while later, when I was a teenager, um, and I understood things a little bit more, I decided to make my own decision again, and so I recommitted my life to Jesus at that time. But Really, my understanding about what it meant to invite Jesus into my heart was a bit lame, really. It was kind of like, well, Jesus, I'm going to pop you in my bag and we're going to go to school and then I'm going to pop you in my bag when we go to friends. And um, I know, Jesus, that you're really going to enjoy youth and church. And... um, And then when things got a little bit tough, then it would be, oh, pull Jesus out of the bag. Help me, Jesus. And he would inevitably help me, but really, that's only a fraction of what it actually means to be living with Jesus in your heart. From where I stand now, retrospectively, I think that if anyone wants to invite Jesus into their heart, there should be warning signs everywhere, <laughs> and there should be a great deal of counselling before somebody takes that, no, that decision on, because what I have discovered is that really what walking with Jesus means, if you want to do it in the real sense, is mean, it, it, it means letting him lead your life not pulling him out the bag or putting him in the bag when you want him. And I think that really now, having experienced a little bit of what it's like to let Jesus lead my life, it's a little bit of a wild and scary adventure and sometimes a little bit too much. The thing is, when you say, please, Jesus, can you come and lead my life, then he immediately starts shaping you up for kingdom purposes because, yeah, he's got plans for you. And so we begin training. And training in the Jesus world is something like boot camp. And so what we start with is Jesus turns you upside down and he shakes you around and he kind of gets all the junk to fall out, all those things that we're ashamed of. Some of them were secret things we had in our pockets. They're all the things that he knows we really shouldn't be holding on to if we're going to do this journey well. And so we get shaken out. And during boot camp, that, that can happen repeatedly at any given time. And it may take you by surprise that you could just be whipped up by the ankles, turned upside down again and a little shake. 
And then he takes us to the mirror of truth, where we see ourselves as we truly are. And we see the good, the bad, and the ugly. And he helps us to see what humility is, looking at things realistically and truthfully. And after we've seen the mirror of truth, we, come, we, we walk along with him, and he takes us to fire. And he says, right, there's the fire. Walk in it. And so we walk through fire. And once we've come out of the fire obstacle, then he's, we need a bit of cooling down. So he takes us to the water. And he doesn't say, swim. He says, right, watch me and do the same. Walk on water. And then he says, do the impossible things that I am doing in front of you. And then, as if that's not enough, we kind of get to the end of the water, we step onto the shore, and we hear an arrow flying past our, our ears. Because what we realize is we're suddenly stepping on enemy territory, and we're under attack, and the arrows are flying at us, and they're the things like the lies and the curses that the devil loves to throw at us that sting really badly. And what does Jesus say? Stand firm. Don't run away. Hold your ground. And then once we've dealt with the enemy attack, then we find ourselves at the base of a mountain. And it's the hugest mountain you've ever seen. And you can't even see the top. And Jesus says, right, come, we're going to the top. And that's just beginner's boot camp. Because the intermediate courses include the Swamp of Despondency, Vanity Fair, the Valley of the Shadow of Death, and the River of Humiliation, just to name a few. <laughs> Honestly, sometimes that what, that's what my journey with Jesus feels like. And if I'm honest, that's just a one-sided view. It's not really the true view. But most of us discover at a very young age that life is not fair. <laughs> and that's because this world has been twisted and tortured by Satan. But really there are no guarantees in this life. Our lives can turn around for good or for bad at any given time for any number of reasons. Things can go really well or really badly. And when we choose to partner with Jesus, guess what? That doesn't really change. Life is still not fair. And life still doesn't offer us guarantees about anything. But what does change is this. Is that we get to do life with the creator who understands the original design for our lives. And he comes alongside us. And he sweeps us into the plan that he has for this earth. He sweeps us into the plan that is about victory. It's about his kingdom coming and world peace. So if we think about that, maybe boot camp is not necessarily just an amusement for Jesus. Maybe it's about equipping us to deal with all that life throws at us. Because, you know, God is a restorer. He is someone who likes to take a big mess and 
turn it into something really of value. And so that's what he's doing. He says in Romans 8.28 that he's always working for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And so trusting in Jesus and letting him lead is perhaps not so much just about survival, but he's actually teaching us how to rise above our circumstances and how to do life well and how to walk in the victory plan that he has. So, okay, is there any Bible for this? Yes, there is. There are actually plenty of boot camps in the Bible, and the one that comes to mind is David. I love the story of David. Um, It's just got a bit of everything. They really should make a movie of his life because it will be blockbuster. Um, But it's basically, it's it's a rags-to-riches story. Well, that's how it starts out anyway. And, um, and what we can read in the Bible, this is why I love it so much, is that we read the story of David's life through the books of Samuel and Chronicles. And alongside that, that's the historical account, alongside that we have the Psalms. And the Psalms are beautiful poetry, emotional outbursts where we get to see the heart of David and what's really going on in him as a person. And those psalms, some of them match up very, very specifically to historical accounts that we read about in other books. So you really get a huge picture about what it's like to walk a good life with God. And so David's story begins with a rags to riches story. He's this little shepherd boy that nobody really even knows or cares about. He gets anointed to be Israel's next king by one of the most influential men of that society, Samuel, the prophet Samuel. And he obviously has a very wonderful heart after God. He knows God. He loves God. He walks in the victory of that He slays a giant when the whole country's army is shaking in their boots. And then he goes on to win battle after battle after of these horrible enemies, the Philistines. And then he wins the king's daughter in marriage. And everybody loves David. Golden boy. But it does all turn sour after a while because... Saul, who is the king in existence at the time, becomes ill with jealousy and rage at how well David is received and how well he's doing. And so Saul begins to try to kill David. The first account, or one of the first times David narrowly escapes death, is um, is a time when he's in the palace um, with his wife, who is the king's daughter, um, and his, his wife actually covers for him because they hear the plot and she pretends that he's sick and, and so that just gives him some time to sneak out the window and run for his life. During that time, there's actually a psalm that matches that exact event um, and it's Psalm 59. This is what David writes. So this is what's going through his head at the time. Rescue me from my enemies, O God. Protect me from those who have come to destroy me. I have done nothing wrong, yet they prepare to attack me. Wake up, God, and see what is happening and help me. 
So David really was in a place of helplessness. We get to those places in life where it's just something that we can't control, we can't fix it, but something's going wrong. Where is God in our helplessness? Where is God in your helplessness? Well, this is what David thought at that time. The rest of that psalm says, You are my strength. I wait for you to rescue me, for you, O God, are my fortress. In his unfailing love, my God will stand with me. He will let me look down in triumph on all my enemies. But as for me, I will sing about your power. Do you think he's seeing the power of God at that time? Not really. Maybe he got away with his life. But each morning I will sing with joy about your unfailing love. I think there is intention in that. And sometimes in our hard places we need to actually will ourselves to believe and speak out the truth of God. For you have been my refuge, a place of safety when I am in distress. Oh, my strength, to you I sing praises. For you, O oh God, are my refuge, the God who shows me unfailing love. David had hope in his time of helplessness. In fact, David had the living hope that Kirk was talking about a while back. He had the living God on his side. And when it came to a situation of helplessness, he chose to lean in a little harder to his living hope, to hope personified in God, and trust that in the midst of that circumstance, God would give him safety, refuge, and show his unfailing love. So, did God do that? Is it true that God does that? David went on to have many, many close calls with death in the seven years that followed. And one or two times, actually, he came within metres of his death because Saul literally was chasing him, and, and, and David was within metres of Saul, who would kill him if he had known. But David had an opportunity to show mercy, and he did, and that humbled Saul, and Saul backed off both times. And that's how God uses his capacity to change the most evil of circumstances into good, when we lean into him, lean into his goodness. So David was never, ever caught by Saul, and David wasn't killed by Saul either. Who's heard this? Just nod your heads vigorously if you have heard someone say this to you um, or quote it to you. God will never give you more than you can bear. Okay, if anybody can find that verse for me in the Bible, I will give you $50. <laughs> Only 50 because I don't know my Bible that well, but I'm very, very sure 
that, that, that verse is not in the Bible. And what people are quoting when they read that verse is actually 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13, which says, And God is faithful. He will never let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Do you see, that verse is about temptation. It's not about what life throws at you. It's about standing up against evil and not succumbing to temptation. It's a different meaning altogether. And I want to refute the lie right now that God will not give you more than you can bear. Because God will give you more than you can bear. And if we start to believe that he will not ever give us more than we can bear, then when our circumstances become overwhelming, you know what we're going to say? There's something wrong with me. This is not right. I'm doing something wrong and it's all just not working. God purposely will take us to places where we come to the end of ourselves and we cannot do it ourselves. And we need some help from him. And maybe he's the only one that can help us. And he does that on purpose because it's important in our faith to come to that point, to that crisis of belief where we understand, I can't do this. I need him. And he is going to come through for me. God will give you more than you can bear. And in fact, David, although he became king, and he was one of Israel's greatest kings ever. He went through seven years of hiding in caves in the wilderness with a motley band as his followers of outcasts to society and those people who were disgruntled with Saul's regime. Not exactly your ideal followers, probably people with a lot of baggage, and that is who David had and what he did for seven years. Do you think that he ever wondered if God's promise was ever going to happen? Do you think that he ever lost hope? Because hope is the expectation of something that is desired. Hope is that feeling that what we want can be had. Hope is that sense that events will turn out for the best in the end. Do you think David ever lost that hope? <laughs> that it wasn't actually all going to turn out for the best. Well, he writes this in Psalm 69. Save me, O God, for the floodwaters are up to my neck. Deeper and deeper I sink into the mire. I can't find a foothold. I am exhausted from crying for help. My throat is parched. My eyes are swollen with weeping, waiting for my God to help me. Those who hate me without cause outnumber the hairs on my head. When we feel overwhelmed by our circumstances and just unable to cope, that's when we start to lose hope. There's a psychiatrist named Dr. David Clark who explored the role of hope and faith in psychiatry. And he came across this pattern that happens. We start to feel helpless. And when we feel helpless and that persists for a while, then we start to lose hope. And when we lose hope, it's often because we're actually starting to lose control over our circumstances. 
And when we lose control and it's all just spinning out, then we start to feel a little bit of shame because actually I'm not holding it all together. And I must be incompetent. I must be inferior if I just can't get this together. And if that persists, then we start hearing words like depression and anxiety. Because what happens is that we have these stresses in life and they start to challenge what we assume to be true in life. So our core beliefs are challenged when something really stressful or shocking happens in our life. And we have to try and marry what we thought would happen and what we thought we believed with actually what is our lived experience right now. That is not what Dr. Clark, but what I call crisis of belief. God will, in your journey with him, and he has with me, throw you into a state of crisis of belief where we are forced to say, this is not turning out the way that I wanted it to. This is not what I expected to happen. And I need to decide now, am I going to keep following Jesus then? Or shall I take matters into my own hands and let's try and find another plan to, or another way of dealing with this? What we choose in that moment exposes our faith. It exposes what we truly believe about who God is and who we are and what our faith, where our faith is at. I have been in a situation recently just where I just feel that I'm tired of the boot camp. And I have had conversations with Jesus where I'm sitting there, standing there, staring at the mountain, and I've just gone, no, Jesus, no. And I've looked at, there's another path over there, and I've said, Jesus, you know what? I really like talking with you, Jesus, and I really like having you in my life. So, you know, I really like being with you. Can't you just come along this path with me? Can't we just go to how it was the old times? And, you know, where there's not that much stress, where we've got it all sorted, we've crossed all those bridges. And the thing is, when Jesus kind of says, well, no, the mountain, then I, I have at times had a pity party and where it's just kind of, well, Jesus, you just demand too much and I can't do this. I'm too tired. I'm too weary and, and I'm just a victim in this and, you know, I, I just not, don't want to do this. I want to warn you about pity parties because when we decide to have a pity party, we invite every demon around us to come and join in because they love pity parties. They love it because they can come and shower us with their lies. Like, yeah, you're not good enough. You'll never make it. Yeah, God doesn't really love you. Oh, yeah, you may as well give up now because, you know, what's your hope anyway? And so pity parties, self-pity is a very dangerous trap that we set for ourselves and will only lead to wallowing and sinking deeper and deeper into the miry clay. There is another route that I decided to take at one point, or thought about taking, and it's another self-focused route instead of the mountain. It was uh, to have a look at all my strengths and let's see, well, actually, Karen, you're not doing too badly. You know what? You've got a lot going for you, actually. Look how well you're doing in your job. In fact, wouldn't you get more fulfillment if you had to just spend your energies throwing yourself into your career 
where actually you could get so much fulfillment out of that and it would be much easier than climbing that mountain rather than throwing yourself all this energy that you're putting into the kingdom and the church and everything. You know, that's a lot harder. What about just progressing yourself? Self-pity, self-confidence, self-improvement, self-motivation will only lead you down paths that get to dead ends. They're not the path of life because our self-power will run out. When I was contemplating, finally, okay, God, how do I set my feet in motion up the mountain? Jesus brought to mind a childhood memory Um, And that's of when we were kids and we used to go hiking as a family. Um, We used to go on two or three or five day hikes and they were overnight hikes and it used to be about once a year it was part of our family holiday. (laughs) There I am. I'm in the middle. And um, I remember one of these hikes where I had just had enough. My little leggies were tired. My shoulders were sore because those bags that we carried, sorry, it wasn't the digital age, so those are still film photos. Um, My shoulders were sore. Um, I was hot. It was a hot day and I was hot and bothered. And I just sat down on the path and I said, I'm not going any further. And my dad always used to take up the rear on these hikes, so he caught up with me. And he kind of stood there and said, hey, kiddo. What's going on? So I said, I'm not going any further. And so he said, okay. Have you had something to eat recently? Maybe about an hour or two ago. <laughs> so he whipped out some glucose lollies and handed, to them, handed them to me and I had some. Then he took off his pack and he took out some water, gave me a drink of water. And then he sat down with me. And we just sat there. We chatted, we just talked about life and stuff, just chatted. And eventually, somehow, I wouldn't be able to tell you how, but he rallied me around and and we kind of got up again and we started on our way again. And just a little way ahead of us, there was a stream that we passed, which crossed over, and he said, "Um, yeah, give me your hat. And so, so I gave him my cap and he dipped it in the stream. He said, there we go, now put it on. And it was completely wet. And he said, remember, you've just learned this at school. Evaporation causes cooling. That's going to keep you cool. And it did. And I've never forgotten that because now I wet my hat when I'm in a really hot place. (laughs) Um, But, you know, it struck me that that's exactly what Jesus does. When we're feeling overwhelmed, when we're feeling demoralized, when things aren't panning out the way that we expected and when we've lost hope he comes alongside us and he says hey kiddo what's up and he'll sit down beside us and he'll offer us some of the sustenance that we might need yeah have a bit of daily bread have a bit of the word of god have a bit of living water have a bit of presence And he'll chat with us. Hey, what's going on? Why is the mountain so scary? 
what do you think you need to do to get to the mountain? And, and as he chats to us, he might remind us, as we, and you know, maybe we'll get up at that point, maybe not, but if we do get up and carry on walking along, he will walk with us and he will maybe remind us of some of those principles that, you know, we've learned them. Evaporation causes cooling. We have learned them before, but we've never really understood fully how to apply them. You know that I love you, Karen. You know that I'm not ever going to leave you. <laughs> you know that, that when you're with me, you can do impossible things. You know that I, it doesn't matter what you do, I can't love you any more than I do right now. And so he starts to remind us of the things that we need to hold on to to get us up the mountain. Dr. Rick Snyder was a psychologist and he did volumes of research um, on hope and forgiveness, actually. And he came up with this thing in a nutshell of he was looking at hope-enhancing interventions and he came up with this nutshell of what we need in order to inspire hope. And that is that we need a will and a way to achieve a goal. And that will be, that will define our hope. Well, I can tell you, Mr. Dr. Snyder, that yes, I know that there is a way because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And so I know that I have a way already to achieve my goal of getting to the kingdom purpose he has for me. And in terms of a will, well, yes, Dr. Snyder, God has said to me that he works in me to will and to act according to his good purpose. So right there I have a way and I have a will and I can get to the goal that he has called me to. David did seem to understand that. And in that same psalm of desperation that we read earlier, he turns to the one who will give him the will and the way. And he, he writes this. Answer my prayers, O Lord, for your unfailing love is wonderful. Take care of me, for your mercy is plentiful. The humble will see their God at work and be glad. Let all who seek God's help be encouraged. For the Lord hears the cries of the needy. He does not despise his imprisoned people. Praise him, O heaven and earth, the seas and all that move in them. For God will save Jerusalem and rebuild the towns of Judah. We really need to learn to value the hopeless places. Because it's in hopelessness that we are forced to face what we fear. And it's in those hopeless places that our true beliefs about who God is are tested in the fire and refined and turned to something of more value than gold. And it's when we feel hopeless that we tend to reach out to God and look for those deeper places and those deeper things. And it's when all hope is lost that we tend to be more open to receive the companionship of Jesus. And it's 
when we have lost our way and lost hope, that when we discover that trusting Jesus as our way, giving him our will, will enable us to walk that path that he has destined us to. So David went through boot camp. He went through all of that. And can I tell you that all the promises of God were fulfilled in his life? All of the promises. And so we can understand that in his Psalms, there was much joy as well. He understood the joy of God, of walking with God. So perhaps we can then also look at boot camp differently because actually, if it's not necessarily designed by our God, but it's actually something that he takes us through to equip us, then maybe he actually delights in seeing us navigate it victoriously. And that's really what his aim is, is he wants to see us turning those obstacles into miracles. And we see that all over the Bible because we see, if we go back through the turning us upside down to, to, to pat our junk, He says, let us throw off all that hinders so that we can run, not just walk, that we can run where he's telling us to run. And we can, and Isaiah says, we can run and not grow weary and we can walk and not faint. And then when we get to that mirror, we see when we're doing this with the way, the living hope, when we look in the mirror, what we see reflected back to us is not ourselves, but Jesus And we see his glowing image because he has given us a new image. And when we get to the fire, we will walk through the fire and not be burned. And we will walk through the water and not be drowned. And in that fire, we will have all the other things burned off us, all the impurities. We will walk out of that fire refined and of more value than gold. And when we walk through the water and we actually practice walking on the water, we walk with the living hope on the water and we keep our eyes fixed on the living hope in the water. And so as we're watching him and learning from him, the impossible becomes possible. And then when we get into enemy attacks, we find... Well, he's given us armor, so we pull out our sword and we pull out our shield and we walk through that arrow attack and we, we shield ourselves and we just keep gaining ground and the enemy does not get us down. And finally, we get to that mountain and we climb that mountain. But when we climb the mountain with our living hope, then what we find is that our, li- our feet become as light-footed as the deer, as David said. And we get to the top, and we get to those high places with God. And then we come down the mountain, and then you know what he says? He says, now, move the mountain. <laughs> and we move mountains. And that is really what boot camp is about. That's the hope that we have. It's not that we will get through boot camp ourselves. It's that we have a living hope doing boot camp with us. So, Jesus, I'm just going to ask that you would now cause whatever it is that you are wanting to implant in our spirits to just settle to settle on us now.
thank you, Father, that you are our living hope and thank you that you're okay with when we feel hopeless and helpless and out of control. Thank you that when we invite you into our lives, it's not some little pathetic journey, but that it's actually something that's bold and real and that has capacity to change the world. And we want more of that, Lord. Thank you that you come alongside us at the times when we need you. And you give us the things that we need for the journey. And that when we've sat down on the path, Jesus, that you'll sit with us until we get up again. And so I just pray, Lord, that um, you would, you would um, take, take us out into this week, pressing in and leaning into the hope that we have with you.